let's look at the third chapter of Zechariah. He was a prophet who was born in exile in Babylon, but then he came to Jerusalem. He predicts that the restoration of the temple, which was destroyed by the Babylonian invaders, will mark a new age of salvation for God's people. I want to look at the translation from the complete Jewish Bible, but first let's look at a more typical translation, the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, the updated edition. We'll see that this story is an Old Testament allegory. Then he showed me the high priest, Joshua, standing before the angel of the Lord and the accuser standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to the accuser, The Lord rebuke you, O accuser. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was wearing filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. And to him he said, See, I have taken your guilt away from you, and I will clothe you with festal apparel. And he said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with apparel. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. In his vision, the prophet Zechariah sees three beings whom he recognizes without needing to have them identified for him. The high priest, Joshua, an angel, and the, quote, accuser, who is Satan. The word Satan is derived from the Hebrew word for the accuser. This is a trial scene. God is the judge. Satan is the prosecutor. Joshua was the first person chosen to be the high priest for the reconstruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Joshua is a common name, and this is not the more famous Joshua, the one who was an assistant of Moses. We don't know what Joshua has been charged with. God, the judge, is not happy with Satan's accusation against the high priest Joshua. God says, Is not this man a brand plucked from the fire? This suggests that Joshua has been delivered from some catastrophe that involves a fire, or, more likely, that the catastrophe was so terrible that it can be metaphorically compared to being cast into a fire. Next comes a statement that I want to pay close attention to. Now Joshua was wearing filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. Why was Joshua wearing filthy clothes? Does it have something to do with the catastrophe that happened to him? Before we move on, let's take note of something that we'll return to. The translation from the complete Jewish Bible says this. 
Joshua was clothed in garments covered with dung. This is a more accurate translation from the Hebrew. And in fact, what this passage really implies is that Joshua's clothes were covered with human excrement. But this dung is, of course, a metaphor, which we'll come back to. Next, the angel of God commands that Joshua be given new, fancy clothes, along with a new turban. The scene as a whole is an allegory, a heavenly court, that represents the trial, not just of Joshua, but of the entire Israelite people, whom Joshua symbolically represents. Remember that Joshua is a high-ranking clergy member who has been returned from exile. There's a stain of shame related to a people having been taken hostage and sent into exile in a pagan nation and then having to serve as slaves to the Babylonians. God, however, casts forgiveness on Joshua, symbolically releasing the people of God from their humiliation from the stain of being helpless victims. They are a proud, godly people. We can imagine nothing more degrading than being covered with human poop. The transformation of having these vile articles of clothing removed and replaced with clean clothes that suggest respect this represents the transformation of a people who were slaves into a people who are once again at the center of God's earthly realm. There's a broader interpretation of this allegorical scene. Let's look at what happens next. To keep it more understandable, I'll continue using the NRSV updated edition. Then the angel of the Lord warned Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Now listen, Joshua, high priest, you and your colleagues who sit before you, for they are an omen of things to come. I am going to bring my servant, the branch. For on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven facets, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the guilt of this land in a single day. On that day, says the Lord of hosts, you shall invite each other to come under your vine and fig tree. Remember that this is Zechariah writing this. He's a prophet. We transition now from him describing the trial of Joshua, which is, in truth, an offer of cleansing for all of us, to an oracle. An oracle is a statement by God, but delivered by a prophet. An oracle is a promise, a prediction, a godly counsel. Notice that the words of God, as stated by the prophet, are attributed to the angel, 
God's continuing assistant in this scene. To let us know that this is an oracle, it begins with something formulaic, something common among Old Testament prophecies. Thus says the Lord of hosts. God then reaffirms his covenant with the people of God. But there are conditions put on this affirmation, and these conditions are directed at Joshua as we continue the parallel in which Joshua represents all of Israel. They are, one, the people must walk in God's way, and two, they must keep God's requirements. If these requirements are met, then Joshua shall rule God's house, that is, the temple, and Joshua will take charge of the courts of God. These are religious courts where people stand before priests. This is an even greater gift than you might imagine. These are not just great honors. These two positions will allow Joshua to remain in constant contact with God so that he, in other words, all of God's people, will be far less likely to wander away from the ways of God. God addresses Joshua along with associates of his who are at Joshua's trial. Now listen, Joshua high priest, you and your colleagues who sit before you. Now comes a verse that needs explanation. For they are an omen of things to come. I am going to bring my servant the branch. What this means is that Joshua and his associates, who are probably other priests of the temple, represent the future. God will put forth a new servant, and God is calling this person the branch. Some translations say the sprout. This means that Israel, which has no king at this point and is only now free and intact again, will one day have a king who is in the line of David. This is a powerful statement of God's blessing on the people. They will have their nation restored in every respect, including a king who descends from David. Next is another difficult verse. For on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven facets, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the guilt of this land in a single day. This is likely a reference to Exodus chapter 28, 36 to 38. You shall make a rosette of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. You shall fasten it on the turban with a blue cord, it shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall take on himself any guilt incurred in the holy offerings that the Israelites consecrate as their sacred donations. It shall always be on his forehead in order that they may find favor before the Lord. This rosette is a precious stone that's placed on the turban of the chief priest of the temple. This renews at the time of the return of the Israelites from exile, 
the highly respected and, in fact, exalted nature of the temple clergy. God is saying here, through the prophet Zechariah, that the high priest Joshua will speak for God when it comes to offering forgiveness, just as Aaron, the brother of Moses, served as the first of the priestly Levites during the Exodus. The last line is this. On that day, says the Lord of hosts, you shall invite each other to come under your vine and fig tree. This is, again, difficult to interpret, but this is simply a promise of agricultural fertility to the people who lived off the land and had to depend upon God each year to provide a bountiful harvest. What does this mean? I frequently turn on Christian television. I watch various preachers provide their variations on traditional interpretations of Scripture. Occasionally, I see something inspiring, like an insight into a passage that had never occurred to me. But there have been times when I've seen people who are supposed to be reflecting the grace and generosity and love offered by Jesus say things that are highly judgmental. They categorize people according to how moral they are. Now, this isn't just a conservative thing. The Christian church over the last decade has been badly split by liberal people who don't want conservative people in their churches. We can't seem to get along in the name of Christ anymore. In ancient times, wealthy and poor people, Jews and Gentiles, people from different language groups, all came together. Politics was no boundary either. Consider this from the beginning of chapter 10 of the Gospel of Matthew. Then Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to cure every disease and every sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, also known as Peter, and his brother, Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Canaan, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Most of us just skim over passages like this. We don't carefully read the names and descriptions of each of the apostles. But consider two of these men. You might remember that Simon is also called the Zealot, and Matthew is a tax collector. You can see that they're from opposing political groups. Matthew is a representative of the government, and Simon believes that religion, not the state, should dictate the behavioral norms of people. Jesus himself chose people from varying political perspectives to carry on the word. The church from the outset was meant to be for everyone. Our differences should be left at the door to the church, not brought inside. Consider this from the beginning of the 13th chapter of Acts. Now in the church at Antioch, 
there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a childhood friend of Herod the ruler, and Saul. There were prophets who were also teachers in the church at Antioch. One of them was Simeon, who was called Niger. This is a Latinization, which means that he was from Africa, or that he appeared to be someone from Africa. Another was Menaean, who was a childhood friend of Herod. The Greek word that's translated as, quote, childhood friend, literally says that they had the same wet nurse. So two of these prophets were very different people, one a man from Africa and another a Roman elite. Again, we see something that we don't see much in the modern church in America. The point is that our God offers identical grace and forgiveness to all people. We can approach God so filthy from a moral perspective that we might as well be covered with human poop. God blesses us, gives us new, clean, elegant garments, and we're totally forgiven. This forgiveness, again, is clearly offered to all. We should be reflecting the same sort of general welcome and global tolerance offered by God. Remember that Jesus loved and promoted all people, including the mentally ill, tax collectors, thieves, soldiers, the disabled, and common fishermen. One of those TV preachers I watched made a point of ridiculing Muslims, calling them, quote, jihadists, which of course only describes a tiny minority of Muslims. He then mocked them for wearing, quote, turbans. For one thing, it's Sikhs, who are not Muslims, who are known today for wearing turbans. And very, very few Muslims wear turbans. It was hearing that remark that reminded me of our passage today. Here it is, taken from the complete Jewish Bible. Yeshua was clothed in garments covered with dung, and he was standing before the angel, who said to those standing in front of him, Take those filthy garments off of him. Then to him he said, See, I am taking your guilt away. I will clothe you in fine robes. I said they should put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and gave him fine robes to wear, while the angel of Adonai stood by. Adonai is a Hebrew name for God. It means Lord. The complete Jewish version of the Bible was translated by David Stern, an American theologian living in Israel. Messianic Jews believe that Jesus Christ is indeed the Messiah. So looking at this excellent translation, here's a man so defiled by being cast among pagans as a slave that he's referred to as wearing clothes covered with excrement. But God orders that he be given fine robes and, yes, a clean turban. God offers grace and forgiveness to absolutely every human being.
so should we.